If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. True crime podcasts are really popular right now, and we'll be talking true nonprofit crimes with our guest, Tiffany Couch. Today, I'm talking with the CEO and founder of Acuity Forensics. Now, Tiffany is a nationally recognized forensic accountant. If you're thinking, hmm, oh gosh, Dolph has an accountant on today. What other podcasts are in my library because I'm about to turn this one off? I have to tell you to stop. You have got to hear this show. This accountant is going to rock your world. Tiffany wrote an incredibly compelling book, The Thief in Your Company, which provides the lowdown on different types of fraud, signs of fraud, how to make whistleblowers feel safe, and way more than that. And let me tell you, she didn't do it through the dry, boring text that you would expect an accountant would. She did it the way we love in the nonprofit sector. She told stories. She told stories of real, real forensic cases that she's cracked real fraud that she's found. And through those stories, she helps us understand how we can find fraud and waste in our own organizations. So let me tell you, this book reads like a series of mini mysteries. Case after case, from soccer mom skinning thousands to superstar executive director who took more than $400,000. These stories will hold you in their grip. And Here's how much of a page turner this book is. I I say often um, on this podcast that I travel an inordinate amount. Last year, I flew about 95,000 miles with Delta alone. And so I I always want to be the first person off the plane because I spend so much time on a plane. But this past week, I found myself sitting on the plane after it landed just so I could finish the last chapter of this book. Seriously, listeners, it's like the plane was empty. There was nobody left. And I'm like, page turning. I got to get to the end. I am loving this book. The flight attendants were laughing at me. They're like, no one ever stays on a plane to finish a chapter. So that's how good this book is. 
Now, in addition to her work with the business and nonprofit sector, Tiffany has also created a new educational component called Stop Nonprofit Fraud, which you can find at stopnonprofitfraud.com. Now, we're going to talk about that some more at the end of this episode as well. So settle in. I know this has been a long intro, but when I really love the book, it, it gets a little long. Settle in for this wild ride of storytelling and learn how to make your nonprofit a more secure environment. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for that wonderful intro. I so appreciate it. We're on video. So I actually have to show you every page of this book is underlined, tabbed, dog-eared. And I mean, there were times that literally like I thought, yeah, I've seen this. Oh yeah, I've seen this. So if I had a hundred million dollars, Tiffany, I would spend $95 million buying every nonprofit board treasurer a copy of this book. And then I'd take the other 5 million for my retirement. But the first 95 million would go to distribute this book to every single treasurer who serves for on a nonprofit board. I totally agree. Only in that I never want them to have to meet a thief in their nonprofit or ever have to meet me. Yes. Now, one of the things that you talked about a good bit in your book, and I thought this would be a good place for us to start. You know, when we think about embezzlement or fraud in the nonprofit sector, we think about money lost and money channeled away from mission. But you also talked about the emotional cost of fraud. I do. I do. It's a big part of what I do and what I see. And I don't think everybody, I don't think we are talking about that part enough. So, so, so let's talk about it for a second. Like what is the emotional cost of fraud? It's the bigger cost. In fact, I find that when I'm dealing with my clients, when they call and they've got an issue, I often wish that in addition to that accounting degree that I have, that I also had a psychology degree because I'm, I'm literally um, counseling these people through what, through all of these emotions, which usually start with what's wrong with me that I didn't see this coming. How did I trust this person and not see this? Um, and, and it just goes on from there to, to anger, to, to disappointment. It's just, it runs the gamut. And you also made a point multiple times in the book of saying that oftentimes it's the person you trust the most who's been with you 10, 20, 30 years, that's the one that's finding some way to take money out of the organization. And you talk about how it's, it's that breach of trust that really hurts as well. Right. So that's a really great point. It's where, where I like to start. We, we never think fraud can happen to us. It, it can. The most insidious part of these crimes is that it is always, every single case I've ever done, the person who's perpetrated the crime is the top three top five maybe, but usually the top three most trusted individuals, most well-liked individuals in the organization. In other words, it's the last person anybody expects to do such a thing. And let's think about it. If I didn't like you, if I didn't trust you, am I going to let you take my money to the bank? Am I going to let you write my checks? Am I going to let you process payroll? No. And so these folks use their ability to be liked and to be trusted to perpetrate these crimes. And we, really nice people, fall into that lulled sense of security that this really nice, really well-trusted person is handling everything. And we don't often do some of those double checks. So it's a great way to start this off. So let me ask you, what do you say to the nonprofit executive director who says, oh, well, so-and-so who manages petty cash, 
Yeah, they, they reconcile it as well, but it's not really weakness internal control because I just, I trust them. I would trust them with my baby. What do you say to them? And I, I would first say, you know what? It's so great that you have an employee that you like that well. That is great because I know how hard it is to find great employees. And when you have them, you want to keep them. But we not only have to keep the nonprofit's assets safe, we have to keep our employees safe in their jobs. And as much as they're trusted, um, we've got to manage both of those sides, right? And so here are some things I might, re I might recommend that somebody else reconcile that cash account um, if she's administering the payments. So I would always, I always try to lead with, I agree, it's really great, but here's the things that you need to think about in terms of, of your risk. Um, and, and understanding that we really do have to keep our assets safe. That's actually written down uh, for nonprofit board members. That is part of their job and for the executive directors. But I also say we've got to keep those employees safe in their job because we never know when that pressure, maybe they've got a sick baby or they've got uh, a parent they're taking care of or they can't pay the mortgage or whatever it is. We don't ever want that pressure to turn into them deciding to take our money. You also have one really powerful question that you talk about in the book a couple of times that you like to ask the person who who really feels like it's a violation of, of their honesty and trust to have an internal control put in place. And what's that question? Oh, yes, I know exactly where you're going with that. When I'm, I am approached by either a client or one of their staff members and they say, how dare you want to put a control over me or how a new process what's wrong with you that you don't trust me? I always ask that staff member, if $5 is missing or $5,000 is missing in this organization, where do all the roads lead, right? And that person will usually look at me and the, the, the blood will drain from their face and they'll say, oh my gosh, if there was $5,000 or $5 missing in this organization, all roads point to me and there would be no way to prove otherwise. And so usually when you talk to people in that regard, they will literally start passing off, you know, job duties to other people to keep themselves safe. And I, I can usually tell if I have an ego problem by asking that, pro that question, whereas somebody who's either has a bigger ego problem or, or more likely there's a problem with fraud, They'll just continue to dig in with the, what's wrong with you that you don't trust me? And how dare you try and put controls over me? And, and it's a, just a mechanism to keep people away and keep people from asking questions. Yeah. So let's talk about just a couple of the more common types of fraud. I know in the book you talk about um, skimming schemes. What are those? Can you tell a skimming scheme story? I've got a great skimming scheme store. I've got one for a nonprofit and it's terrible and it's really interesting all at the same time. It involves a church and it involves a priest who was stealing from the church, okay? Talk about the most trusted person in the organization. Um, so skimming basically means your money is coming into your organization, whether by check, whether by cash, whether by credit card, and it never makes it to the bank because somebody diverts it and puts it into their pocket before it makes it to the bank. And, and nonprofits are especially at risk for, for skimming schemes because 
Most nonprofits don't have accounts receivable, right? We are relying on donations to come in. Um, we don't necessarily bill for, for goods and services. Sometimes we do, but not always. So you're especially at risk for these schemes because we never know when somebody at the goodness of their heart are going to donate to us. Um, and in this regard, this priest was stealing. Uh, he was stealing money out of the offering plate. I could prove that it was happening. I couldn't prove the amount, but we could see that on the Sundays when he wasn't there, donations went up exponentially. But the other thing he was doing when folks were coming in to the church for their marriage or their baptism or what have you, they would always have to meet with the priest to, you know, talk about the ceremony and what was going to happen. And they had to pay a fee for the use of the church. And he would encourage them to pay him the fee. And he was taking all of that money. So all of these baptisms and weddings were happening and there was no income on the books. And one of the ways I was able to prove out that case was... They had little forms that are not even forms. They had a census book at the church for all of those um, ceremonies. And I was able to prove how many people had been baptized and or married at the church during this period of time. And we were able to quantify the losses related to that skimming scheme. One of the other mysteries, also kind of a skimming scheme, not kind of, also a skimming scheme that you solved and you talk about in the book is the bookkeeper at the private school. And how for five years, there were no cash deposits made, or some number of years, even though, you know, in schools, field trip money, lunch money, all of that is done with cash. Oh, thank you for reminding me of that story. That's a great, it's a small nonprofit, K through eight private school. And the way that they uncovered uh, a problem was the IRS showed up and said, hey, you haven't been paying your, your payroll taxes. And, and let me just tell your friends here. It takes a long time for the IRS to call you because they're sending you notices for years if you're not paying your payroll taxes. And so when when they gave me, they just wanted to identify what was going on. And I was able to look at their bank statements and I said, where's all the cash? There's only checks being deposited. And you you made a very good point there. We Number one, we had a lot of tuition payers in cash. It was that demographic of people. And there was no cash, uh, no simple, here's how many students we have times the amount of tuition equals our revenue. Nobody had done a simple calculation and compared that to the bank statements. Had they done that, they would have uncovered the biggest part of the fraud. But then when you go down to the milk money, the lunch money, the fundraiser money, the band trip money, you could just, we've all had, most of us have had children or been children. How much money do you take to school over time? And none of that cash had been deposited to the bank in years. And you made a point of saying there was a CPA on the board. The organization got audited every year. And just having a CPA and just getting an audit's not a sufficient, quote unquote, internal control because it's not an internal control. And you made a point of saying that. Yeah, only 4% of frauds are found by the external auditors. So a clean audit just means that your financial statements are reasonably stated they have nothing to do with saying there is no fraud happening here. And that's a huge misnomer. A lot of people think, well, I've got a clean audit. There's no fraud here. And that's unfortunately not necessarily the truth. And it also probably means a clean audit if fraud's going on means you have a fraudster who's figured out how to commit fraud while still having a clean audit. 
Well, correct. And they're usually the ones dealing with the auditors. So the auditors are believing what they say. They're relying on the documents that the fraudster's giving them. Um, we just had a case last week where the woman pled guilty. Um, she was not only it was not only a clean audit at this nonprofit. The fraud was literally on the front pages of the bank statements because she was just using the debit card to pay all her expenses. But they had a clean audit every year. And I could see that when the auditor would ask questions, I could see via email, when the auditor would ask questions, this woman would have the best explanations and the auditor would say, thank you very much, and then go on with their day or with whatever they had to do next and never really look into it. And you talk about this, and it's also because of the external pressures auditors have. So, you know, the auditor's firm is saying, okay, you got two and a half days for field work. We need to get everything done. They're trying to check the boxes. Okay, we got this, we got this, we got the explanation. Okay, we're good. Correct, because number one, they are, especially with a nonprofit audit, you're probably bound by a, a pretty tight budget. Uh, you're going to be bound by a uh, pretty tight schedule because you've got to go from one client to the next. And uh, so your resources can tend to be limited. And when you get a plausible explanation, we're humans, we're much more likely to believe what somebody tells us, especially when they're nice and likable and trustworthy then we are to say, you know, I need that external piece of information to verify what you're telling me is true. I will say I felt pretty good when I read your number one recommendation because it's something I've been saying to nonprofits throughout. I've been consulting for the last five years, but I've been saying for the last five years to every nonprofit, whenever they ask me, and I don't, I don't do accounting, whenever we're just having conversations um, about their finance committee is part of my French review the damn bank statement. Review it, review it, review it. When I was on the phone with this nonprofit person that became my client, um, she was the executive director. She's a new executive director. She's getting me onto the online banking. She's talking to me about what's going on. And I'm looking at the bank while she's talking to me. And I look at the front page of the bank statement and find fraud within literally five minutes, right? I find this woman was paying her home mortgage and her utilities through the, the company's account or the nonprofit's accounts. And when I said, who reviews your bank statements? She said, well, I'm assuming the bookkeeper, we just give them right back to her. And a lot of folks don't even realize that that one basic step, and I am so proud of you, I am so excited that that is part of what you counsel people, that one basic step of looking at your bank statements and cancel check images, 75% more of your fraud risk, it's going to be uncovered right there because it's going to show you your deposits, right? Did your money make it to the bank? And number two, how is your money getting spent? Is it getting spent fraudulently or is it getting just misspent right spent spending on stuff that we don't need or don't want or is just you know recurring and we don't even realize it's still there i gotta jump in real quick because you know also nowadays banks do not routinely give you copies of your canceled checks in your bank statements it's something you have to request and it's also something you often have to pay for i actually once upon a time when I was a staff member in an organization, once upon a time was told by, by someone in finance, oh, well, the bank won't give us copies of our canceled check you know, on the statement. I'm like, you need to call them and find out how much it costs. I promise you they will. Might cost 25 bucks a month and it's worth it. It's worth it. And the reason I say review the paper, I know it's not green or maybe politically correct or however you want to describe it. The online banking is great for checking your balance. Um, and reconciling your bank account, it's great for that. 
but most of us don't have time to load every single one of those images and look at it. Whereas when we get it in paper, we can review it much more quickly, you know, in a 10, 15 minute time span for most organizations. And, and it's gonna be much more efficient use of our time. And depending on how large your nonprofit is, I would say, you know what, we do a lot of business with you. Can you please waive that fee? Um, otherwise, pay the fee. It, it's a great little insurance policy, especially if you implement that process. Make sure that somebody who is not involved with signing checks or taking money to the bank is reviewing those statements every single month. Back when I was an, an executive director, not only did I review the bank statements and I would initial each page and date it to show that I'd reviewed it, but at the monthly finance committee meetings, I would also hand it to the treasurer and say, I need you to review this. Ask me any questions if you don't understand something. And I need you to initial and date each page because I just, I really believe there's gotta be accountability on that. And you can actually see whether or not your internal controls to some level are being followed. So like, you know, like if you have a procedure that says, um, any check over 2,500 requires two signatures. When you get the copies of the checks, you can see, you know, or, you know, you can see, oh, look, so-and-so signed a check to themselves. Okay, let's ask why they signed a check to themselves. Or what's missing? Like, why don't I see any payroll taxes being deducted? That was a big one in that, the payroll taxes are a big one, right? Because I can go only so long and not pay rent or pay the utilities, stuff's gonna start getting shut down, but I can go a long time and not pay payroll taxes. And so, you know, in this, this nonprofit organization, that should have been a clue that every two weeks they're paying employees why aren't the payroll taxes being deducted at the same time? Just on that, I got to say, and I, I know I'm, we're nerding out on each other here, Tiffany, but, but just on that, I also have to say, board members really need to understand that if their nonprofit fails to pay rent, chances are, depending on the laws and everything else in their state, I don't do legal tax or accounting advice, but chances are the landlord's not going to sue them personally. But if you owe past due payroll taxes, the IRS is coming after you as a board member. They're saying you have a responsibility. There are fiduciary duties that you have as a board member and the, it's written right into the IRS code. And a lot of folks are just the, some of the nicest people in the planet are on these nonprofit boards, right? And they just wanna give back to their community or they love the mission of the nonprofit, but they don't truly understand some of those fiduciary responsibilities. And what I find is that as smart as they are in their respective roles in their jobs or in their community or in their families, they are not always feeling, they don't feel comfortable with the numbers. So they don't always ask questions or they don't wanna feel stupid or they don't really know. And so, so sometimes I think things just go by the wayside out of fear of being embarrassed or feeling stupid. And I wanna empower people to say, listen, numbers don't make sense to everybody, that's okay. Here's how to understand them. Here are the things you can do that are very easy, good questions to ask, good processes to have that empower you as a board member and, and help you maintain your duties as a board member. Absolutely. Now, let's also talk about corporate credit cards because, you know, as nonprofits become more corporate, it's not at all unusual, even in smaller ones, 30-person organizations, to see five people with credit cards. What types of fraud should nonprofits be on the lookout for and how do they stop it? So the first thing, if you're going to have a corporate credit card, then the first thing I want you to do is work with your bank to identify those uh, either, um, they're basically company codes or certain industries where you cannot spend money. 
for example, a gentleman's club, right? You would just not be able to swipe your credit card. And so the credit card companies are able to identify for you, like maybe you don't wanna have any restaurants or anything at Amazon. You can actually lock down those cards for where you don't want the money to be spent. I want you to do that first, okay? And then if those cards are being used, then somebody who is not also managing those cards, or sorry, excuse me, somebody who's not using those cards should review those, those statements every month. And I know that takes time. I, I believe that story's in the book where this up and coming executive director, just this amazing woman accomplished in under 40, she was doing great things in the community, great things for this nonprofit as their executive director. And those guys, those nonprofit board members are signing those checks every month for a credit card. But nobody ever asked to look at the statement. And had they done that, they would see her trips to Victoria's Secret. They would see her trips to Las Vegas. They would see her trips to the spa none of which had anything to do with the with the nonprofit. And so it's just, it sounds so simple and so basic, but it truly is. And if if she had known that they're looking every month, what are the chances she's going to misuse that card? But if she knows they're not looking and it just, I mean, she literally bought all of the furniture for her brand new house off of that card in one month. And they just signed a check and nobody ever looked at the statement. And I'm so glad you said that because it is incumbent on the board chair or the treasurer, if your executive director has a credit card to say, not only do we want to see the credit card statement, we also want to see the receipts and we need itemized receipts. So it can't be, you know, you know, like, oh, dined out and it's, you know, the total with the tip. Um, it needs to be itemized receipts and that whatever board member reviews it has to be comfortable saying, can you explain this to me? Might be a reasonable explanation, but has to be comfortable asking for one. And you, yes. And if even if you're uncomfortable asking for it, ask for it anyway, because that's your job. Um, and those itemized receipts are so important. And go through them and ask questions. And even if you know the answer, when you ask those questions, they know you're looking. Those itemized receipts, it's surprising what you'll see go through there. A lot of nonprofits have a no alcohol policy, right? So if you get the tab with just the total and the tip, that's not going to show you what they ordered. Whereas the, the itemized bill might show a $50 bottle of wine with the $20 dinner, you know? So we want to make sure that those uh, receipts are attached to those statements every month. So now let's talk about expense reimbursement requests, another big area for fraud. Easy. I call that the low hanging fruit um, because that's where I look first. Because it's just the place where people test their ability to take advantage. Say more about that. The expense reimbursement is one of those places where, you know what, it's really the honor system, right? I'm going out, I'm taking a trip, I have to fly out to, to the East Coast, I'm going to have a plane ticket, I'm going to have a, a hotel ticket, I'm going to have meals, I might have some transportation. So I'm going to have all of those things that go along with travel. And I, my company, that nonprofit is, is relying on me to adhere to their standards. They're wanting to make sure I don't take a first class ticket or that I stay in a reasonably priced hotel and then I'm not um, downing everything in the mini bar. And so those are places where employees who may have a different set of rules <laughs> in their mind, they might say, you know what, I'm working really hard. I should be able to drink whatever I want out of the mini bar. 
or I should be able to go to the spa and have that massage uh, when I'm out of my meetings, whatever that looks like. We wanna make sure that folks aren't doing that. So those itemized receipts should come with every single one of those expense reimbursement forms and somebody must review them. There's, I believe the case is in my book. It's a $1.4 million, sounds outrageous, $1.4 million of an expense reimbursement scheme from this person who was not only doing all of that personal spending on the company dime, but also just putting in fake receipts on his expense reimbursements and getting reimbursed for things that never happened. Review, review, review. Now, all the audience, and Tiffany, you might also think I'm stingy when I'm about to say this story. I'm a big fan on things like expense reimbursements and credit cards of really setting the threshold of that's not okay at a point where a lot of things are just not okay because I think it, it sets a standard and an expectation. And so one of the ways that I did this, one place, I've been an interim executive director in many places, so I'm not telling stories on the single organization when I say this. One place where I was interim, I reviewed someone's um, expense reimbursement request and they were they were going on a they were going on a, a out of town conf, going to an out of town conference, and I know what part of town this person lives in. They walked out their door and went to the Starbucks next door to their home on their way to the airport and picked up like a seven dollar coffee. And I'm like, um, isn't this right on the same block as where you live? And the person says, well, yeah, but it it, it all falls within my per diem. And I'm like, when you come to work in the morning. If you stop at the Starbucks, we don't pay for your coffee. Why would we pay for your coffee on the way to the airport? To me, like when you do things like that, then you kind of set this expectation of we're going to carefully look at this. And if it's not allowable, it's not allowable. I love that. One of the worst uh, expense reimbursement, I hear it all the time. We don't do any receipts for $20 or under. Well, okay, well then I can go have a really great time, right? I can just go all day long at $20 or under at the Starbucks every day or whatever. Um, and so I'm a big proponent of every receipt for every transaction. Yes, I realize that there are gonna be times when something gets lost or we forget to make sure they print it out. I get that, but we have must set the policy and set the tone and any sort of questionable items must be reimbursed back taken out of the paycheck or what have you, because you've got to set the tone. So so we are rapidly running out of time, Tiffany. I knew this would happen because I knew that I would love talking to you. So let's talk about a few of the internal controls that really every nonprofit should have. We've already talked about the checking account statement and making sure that you've got that. What are some of the other just core basic internal controls that would stop a, the vast majority of fraud? Big one uh, for this nonprofit we just got done with was they had this person uh, have a mail log for all the money that comes in the mail. And then they just put the money in a drawer and then somebody would take it to the bank later. I wanna make sure that at least two people are opening the mail and writing down all of the money that comes in the mail. When you say two people are opening the mail, do you mean they're doing it together or they alternate days or what do you mean? Oh no, doing it together, that's a great question because a lot less likely to have collusion, right? So I want two people just to, I know it's a, it's a bit of a drain of a resource, but we can easily, you know, 20, 30 minutes a day, let's open the mail, figure out where it needs to be routed. And for those checks that come in, we fill out the account sheet and we route the account sheet to the accountant or the bookkeeper, or the treasurer, whoever is doing the accounting, okay? That gets routed to that person. And then one of those two people usually can bundle that money up and take it to the bank. That way 
when the accountant is reconciling the bank, we can verify that what came in the mail or what came through the fundraiser or whatever, we have those two people counted, we have the count sheet, it matches what made it to the bank. Once the accountant reconciles the cash and check log with the actual deposits that went into the bank, should somebody else verify the reconciliation or are we just good once the accountant has done it? I always um, am going to assume that that somebody's double checking the reconciliation as well. We don't want old unclear checks. We don't want old deposits in transit. We really should see that everything on that reconciliation is pretty current okay? and that we don't have any old stuff hanging out out there. The biggest one for nonprofits is if you're at a fundraiser, you're getting money in the mail, that sort of thing, especially when you have no accounts receivable, that you've got two people that are counting that money and that that count sheet gets routed away from the person who gets to take the money to the bank. Because I don't want that count sheet either thrown away or manipulated so that we can hide any sort of cash skimming. If you are the person that are setting up or entering vendor bills and preparing the checks, somebody else is signing those checks. Very basic, but it's a great internal control. And then that second step, of course, is reconciling the bank statement and cancel checks. How do you feel about the ability for someone to sign a check to themselves? Oh, nobody should ever be able to sign a check that is written to themselves, whether it's a payroll check or whether it's a reimbursement check. No, no, no. It's just going to raise questions that don't need to be had. And let's face it, you can wait an extra few hours or to the next day or two to get a board member in there to sign that check, okay? It's not that of a rush. That's <laughs> um, just, if, if you have traditional accounts receivable where you are billing for goods or services, if you have somebody doing the billing, I don't want that person also taking the money to the bank. Let's separate those two duties to make sure that 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 we don't have an ability for somebody to manipulate the accounting system for money that they've stolen. Um, payroll is big. In terms of payroll, we've had several of these cases where my clients approve payroll. They know what the time cards say or they know what the salaries are. They approve payroll. Payroll gets processed and that person is, has either called in more hours for themselves, called themselves in for more time, called themselves in for a higher salary and pay them, they effectively pay themselves more. So I wanna make sure just like those bank statements, just like those credit card statements that you're reviewing payroll reports after payroll's been run. The good news for your listeners, it doesn't take more money to have basic, but really strong internal controls, right? We can we can really segregate duties or use some of our volunteers or our board to help shore up and keep those assets safe and our employees and our and our volunteers safe in their jobs. So there is one internal control that I have never actually thought about and I love. And so the internal control is the person that is responsible for entering the accounts payable and actually cutting the check cannot be the person that enters new vendors into the accounting system. Because otherwise, if it's the same person, they could create their own fictitious entity or even a real entity, a legal entity that could be checked and write checks to themselves through that entity. It's one of those controls that people don't really, we don't, it's not like the top of the list, right? But it's a great internal control because a new vendor should be a real vendor 
And one of those frauds that I see is that uh, people go and create an, an entity, write checks to the entity, because it's much easier to write checks to an entity than to myself, right? And um, they're, they're basically writing checks to themselves, and we want to make sure that they can't do that. Amen. Amen. Now, I've already said we're rapidly running out of time and, and it's and it's waning even more now. So I'm going to run over to the off the map question. By the way, listeners, we've probably only covered a tenth of what's in this book. And again, Tiffany does it all with stories. So but I don't want to cover too much of the book because I don't want you to feel like you shouldn't get it. Every listener needs to go on Amazon and get a copy of this book. They just really should. But we're going to move over to the off-the-map question. Tiffany, I don't know if you're aware, but we do an off-the-map question that's really in no way related to what we just talked about, but it helps listeners get to know you as a person. I learned something about you that I would not expect a forensic accountant to have been. So tell me about the time when you were crowned the Miss Cotton Queen in your hometown in California, where the, I don't even think they grow cotton in California. Tell me about this. We do. That's the big misnomer. Everybody says, oh, you're from California. They think the beach or they think LA, right? Um, but I grew up in the Central Valley, which really is a place. If you're wearing a cotton shirt today, it's more than likely been grown in my hometown. And um, very big cotton farming, lots of dairy cows. Um, but cotton was the big is the big thing in my hometown. And every year they crown the cotton queen for the cotton festival because we harvest cotton in, in the fall. And uh, usually it's a high school student. And so you go around and give speeches and sell tickets and and I think do an interview. And so I won the 1991 cotton queen. I have a crown. I have a tiara. I've got the, the sash. Uh, I learned the wave. And I not only got to be the crowned person at our Cotton Queen event, or excuse me, our Cotton Festival event, but got to travel around uh, to the various towns and all of their other little festivals that year. And it was fun. So it, was fun. it is 100% okay to tell me no, but I would love, love, love to post a picture of you with your crown and your sash, either then or now in the show notes. I'm fine if it's then or now, but I would adore this. We can do it. We can do it. That'll be fun. I should do it now because I think that'll just embarrass my teenage boys. And I just, I would love to do that. Awesome. I love it. I, so I will make sure we get that photo and we get it on the show notes. One more good reason for listeners to check out the show notes. Now, Tiffany, I just have to say thank you for writing this book. I, I know you talk about both the for-profit and the nonprofit sector, and I'm sure this is a need in the for-profit sector too, but there is a dire real need for your book in the nonprofit sector. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for coming on the show today. I am confident that our listeners that did not switch to another podcast as soon as I said accountant, um, and yes, we know who those listeners are. We don't really, but I'd like to think we know who those listeners are. Those that did not switch got a lot out of this. So um, just a couple things real quick. Listeners, make sure you pick up a copy of this book. It is The Thief in Your Company by Tiffany Couch. I actually thought about offering to give away my copy, but it is so dog-eared and so underlined. And, the, and what I've underlined might not be what you as listeners need. So here's the deal I'm going to make. The first person that goes on and writes a review of the podcast, I, and you got to email me and tell me you did it, and I'll verify it because we don't like fraud. 
And so once I verify that you've written that review, I will go on Amazon, I will buy a copy of this book and I will have it delivered to the address of your choice. So it's only one, it's not a huge risk for me, I'm hoping someone takes me up on it. Now, some other things I'd like for listeners to consider. First of all, go to acuityforensics.com, which is Tiffany's firm. And after you've finished checking out her firm, go to stopnonprofitfraud.com. There's a ton, I mean a ton of free information both at Acuity Forensics and also at Stop Nonprofit Fraud. But one of the most exciting things about StopNonprofitFraud.com is that they have created an e-course to help nonprofit executives and board members recognize and stop fraud as well as put some of these internal controls in place that will ensure fraud does not happen. Now, Tiffany has generously offered a discount code for our listeners. So we're also going to put that in our show notes. So if you want it for a little bit less, and I have to say, when I checked, I don't think it's that much. It's like, what, 200 bucks, something like that? I think we have it down to 99 right now. And I think the coupon code is going to be off of that, um, which is pretty exciting. I have to say that is dirt cheap for really incredible continuing education. And if it's anything as good as this book, it's worth every single penny. So Again, do not forget, if you are not the first person to write a review, and I do not buy a copy of this book for you, go on Amazon or, of course, walk into a bookstore and buy The Thief in Your Company by Tiffany Couch. Hey, Tiffany, thank you. This has been amazing. I loved your book. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate being here and and being able to talk to all your listeners. If you've been scrambling to review your nonprofit's accounting records with a fine-tooth comb while hearing these sordid tales of fraud and embezzlement, don't stop. Keep that up. All the information that you're going to need from today's show is at our homepage, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. That is our show for this week, dear listeners. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. 